Good morning. Hey, if you're new to All Souls, uh, or if you've been gathering with us just for a little while, our vision for discipleship is captured in a phrase that you'll hear from time to time, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And a core conviction of ours is that apprenticeship to Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. Uh, that faith is more than a collection of ideas about reality. It's, it's a, an embodied set of practices, habits, relational rhythms, things that we see in the life of Jesus so that we can be at home in the kingdom of God as Jesus was. And so we can participate in this seed-like kingdoms coming into this world to remake, renew, and restore everything. And so kind of to that end, we uh, a couple of th- three times a year, we arrange our uh, Sunday mornings and our community groups around a, a practice that we see in the life of Jesus. Uh, my working theory of change is that along with reflection on scripture and life in community, that spiritual practices or disciplines, as they're sometimes called, they are a means that open us up to the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives. They're the way that we cooperate with God's work to heal and restore and set us free so that we can experience grace flowing into us and be people who have grace flowing out of us that we become ever more marked by love. So all that means is that uh, spiritual practices are a means to an end, and that end is to be men and women who look like Jesus. They are... uh, A way that we say yes to the Spirit's work in our lives, that slow, steady, faithful work of shaping us in the image of Jesus for the sake of others. So with that, I want to invite uh, Leslie to come and uh, lead us in our scripture reading this morning. So friends, come, listen to the word of the Lord. Please join me as I pray for God to open our hearts to receive his word to us. Holy God, you passionately pursue us and our well-being. Open our minds to trust the guidance and instruction in your word. Open our hearts to trust your decisions and decrees, even when they challenge us. We turn to your word, assured your ways are loving and righteous, and work for the good of those who love you. Amen. Our scripture reading is Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sociologist Jean Baudrillard has argued that for the affluent West, consumerism 
has become the dominant system of meaning in the world. In brief, he says that secularism hasn't replaced Christianity. Shopping has. We get our meaning from what we consume, our identity from the things that we buy. Uh, Philosopher James K.A. Smith calls this the liturgy of the shopping mall. But it hasn't always been like this. If you were to pull a Captain America and go into the ice in 1945, having freed the world from the tyranny of Hydra like you do, only suddenly to come out in the year 2023, you would be coming back to a world that you did not imagine or even recognize. Uh, The economic growth between when you were frozen in time and came out of it would be absolutely unprecedented. The level of wealth that you would see in cultural centers like New York and San Francisco, the level of poverty and urban blight that you would see in once thriving industrial centers like Detroit would be staggering. The the prices of homes, of college tuition, of healthcare, how people think about spending, saving, retirement, all of that, you would have a hard time wrapping your head around. Because in 1941, the United States was just beginning to claw itself out of the worst depression in its history. 16 million Americans then went and served in the war effort, eight and a half million of them overseas. The average age of those who went overseas was 23 years old. And within 18 months of the end of that war in 1945, 7 million would be coming back. What then? What would they do? Where are all these people going to work? Doing what? Where are they going to live? Housing and industry, everything ground to a halt after Pearl Harbor. All of the production went into building planes, tanks, ships, What do you do when those aren't necessary? Just five years out of the Great Depression, policymakers were convinced that unless something drastic happens, another recession was going to come and it was going to cripple the economy. So they did a few things. They kept interest rates low uh, initially to make financing the war something that was feasible to do, but then to stimulate growth in an economy that was no longer focused on wartime production. Long-term interest rates were set at 2.1%. Treasury rates at 0.38%. They did not budge for 17 years. If you are not an economist like myself, just know that's ridiculously low. So faced with this problem of a manufacturing apparatus that was humming on all cylinders, cranking out stuff, that was no longer needed, and this influx of a population that needed places to work, needed places to live, politicians, businessmen, labor leaders in the U.S. found that the only way to avoid a collapse was to pour all of that effort into manufacturing things that people would then buy. Consumption of consumer goods became the explicit economic strategy of the United States. Cheap money and government assistance, things like the GI Bill, made it easy for millions of veterans to buy homes and cars and TVs and gadgets. Although, to be clear, in many parts of the country, black veterans were barred by banks from accessing those funds that were federally theirs to receive. 
but these things also allowed vets to become educated uh, so that they could get better at manufacturing the things that would be consumed. They could get better jobs so that they could buy more things to consume. And they could join the ranks of a new industry shaped to convince people that the pursuit of happiness was paved with shiny new things to buy. One Wall Street banker captured the attitude of reshaping the American dream like this. We must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Or, in other words, this is why you think you need a new iPhone every year. In less than 100 years, America shifted from a largely agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy to an ever-expanding information economy. And it was one that would not just provide for the needs of its citizens, but would also manufacture their wants and their desires as well. And harnessing this desire to acquire more was seen as the key to perpetual economic growth. Now, there's a redemptive side to the, all of this for sure. The productivity boom that had been seen and necessitated by the Depression uh, and went largely unnoticed because of the war effort um, suddenly made Americans realize, hey, we're actually pretty good at making stuff. We're actually pretty innovative. We, we make things that actually make people's lives easier. I mean, washing machines, dryers, dishwashers, home appliances, phones, cars, air conditioning, Right? Electricity, I'm a fan. Like, all of that stuff. And all those things that were out of reach during the war and the Depression because every scrap metal, every bit of it that was, that was available was used to making, you know, ammo and, and guns and military vessels. Well, all that stuff now was suddenly available. And so you take all of that energy uh, that, that pent-up energy from like the possibility of, of making these new things. You, you take a people who are eager to get on with life and start cranking out babies, right? You throw in an advertising apparatus designed to create this itch for more, and you take the invention in 1956 of the personal credit card, and you get a spending spree like the world has never seen. This is a simple story in a simple graph uh, up here in just one second. In 1945, U.S. household debt totaled at $29.4 billion. And over the next 20 years, it grew more than 11 times. According to the journalist Morgan Housel, household debt in the 1950s grew 1.5 times faster than during the financial collapse of the 2000s. And along the way, something began to shift in the psychology of the American people as well. Uh, the good life was no longer about just having enough to live. It was about satisfying desires and then seeing that those desires would shift with every new product that came onto the market. According to the consultant, uh, Victor Lebeau, he described the emerging attitude towards US consumerism like this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. 
that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. And it sounds like a cynical monologue from Mad Men, right? But this is just the water we swim in now. Consumption is a way of life. And the economist E.S. Cowdrick called it this new model, the new economic gospel of consumption. And according to this gospel, the path to salvation is to get more things. We well, fast forward to today and what the Harvard social psychologist Shoshana Zuboff calls the age of surveillance capitalism, where targeted advertising and data mining through social media presents us with up to 5,000 bespoke advertisements per person per day. And all of these things are not aimed at our prefrontal cortex. They're not appealing to our rational mind. They are appealing to our unconscious desires meant to manipulate our feelings and our desires and manufacture this, this idea that we will also, that we can buy things, have things, want things, vote for things. And this idea that we will be our most complete selves with the next click of the mouse button is now just the air we breathe. And the thing is, it's working. I mean, the average American home has more than 300,000 items in it. Average. We consume twice as many material goods as we did 50 years ago. The average home has tripled in size in that time frame, while the average family has been cut in half. A quarter of homes in the U.S. that have two-car garages cannot fit one car in them because of all the stuff they own. And Americans carry an average of $102,000 of consumer debt. Not to mention the ecological devastation that all of our consumed and discarded stuff is having on our planet and the over one-third of the world's population that lives on less than $2 a day. And yet, for all of our stuff, are we any happier? All of the research gives a resounding answer of no. In fact, happiness has been on the decline in the United States since 1952. It's almost like you can see a, 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 a graph with the level of consumption going up and the level of happiness going down. 
In their landmark study uh, over a decade ago, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist uh, Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who is a celebrated economist, they spent months gathering 450,000 uh, responses from Gallup surveys to see what, if anything, they could learn about people's sense of subjective well-being or, or happiness. And what they found is that there is indeed a, a happiness, uh, it does go up uh, where you, know, you, you make more income and happiness does go up to a certain point, right, as you come out of poverty into to what might be called the middle class, happiness does go up. Uh, kind of like when you're no longer running in the red, when you have enough, but the correspondence with money and happiness only rises to a certain point. And that point is probably a lot less than you think. For a family of four in the United States, Deaton and Kahneman put that figure at $75,000 a year. And after that point, you either plateau or even start to see a decline. It's, it's like you hit this, this ceiling, uh, at this point in which your emotional well-being will not go up any higher simply by having more money. And, and to, be, to be clear, you know, that was, they, according to their model, that held in places like New York or San Francisco. You can adjust it for inflation if you want to. But the point remains, the gospel of consumption cannot deliver on its promise. The lie of our culture is that money, wealth, things will make you happier. And the truth is that poverty is terrible. It is a real injustice. And having enough to meet your needs is a beautiful thing, but at some point after that, there is a law of diminishing returns. There's a reason why there's story after story in our culture of lottery winners who strike it rich real fast and then whose lives fall apart. And this lie is kind of wreaking havoc on our emotional health, it's wreaking havoc on our spiritual lives, and it is speeding up society to an untenable pace. Franciscan spiritual writer Richard Rohr paints the picture like this. We live in an affluent society that is always expecting more, wanting more, and believes more is coming to it. But the more we own, ironically enough, the less we enjoy this is the paradox that lies within all material goods. The more we project our soul's longing onto things, the more things disappoint us. Happiness is an inside job. And when we expect to find it outside of ourselves, it's always a disappointment. We then seek a higher or more stimulating experience and the spiral of addiction increases. As the alcoholics say, you need more and more of what does not work. Now they even have coined a word for it, affluenza, the addiction to money and status symbols that seems to have no limits. And all of this begs the question, what if Jesus was right all along? What if contentment isn't out there just beyond the next shirt in the closet or the next accessory for the car or the next piece of furniture for the house or the next good investment what if there was a way that helped us avoid the tug of being pulled in multiple different directions, beset by fatigue, always behind the eight ball, always on the hedonic treadmill of chasing after more and more and more? 
And, and, and although we, we love God and we want to love God well and we want to serve others well, we often find ourselves chasing after that next thing or that next item or that next experience. And we, find, we think we're going to find more satisfaction in that than simply in being still in God's presence. And, and while we know on some level that having more than we need is not really going to lead us to the good life, we also know what it's like to feel that external you know, pull of the manipulation of our consumer culture and that internal push of greed. And when those two things come together, they sabotage the peace and joy and contentment that we really seek, the life that we really long for. So is it a way off of this merry-go-round of consumption? Is there a practice from the life of Jesus that will set us free from what Jesus described in other places as a rival for our worship and his false promise that things and, can, and money can give us security and satisfaction in our heart? Is there a way to break free from these soul-draining habits of materialism and instead find contentment, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God? Well, there is. And countless generations of Jesus' disciples have called it the practice of simplicity or simple living. But before I define it, I want to invite you to take one more look at the scripture passage, uh, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of his manifesto of life in the kingdom of God. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Uh, the phrase, interestingly enough, store up, uh, is one word in Greek. It simply means to amass, accumulate, pile on. But it's actually a play on words that you don't get in English. That word for store up is, is pretty much the exact same word for treasures. And the idea is that don't hoard things, right? Don't, don't wait for some future event and thinking that by, 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 by piling up everything, by, by hoarding your treasure like a dragon in a cave, you're going to find happiness. But instead... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And what Jesus is saying here, and this is super important because you can read that and easily say like, oh, well, I just need to, you know, it's the same kind of treasure. I'm just going to get that kind of treasure later. This is, you know, a call to, you know, uh, some sort of cosmic deferred gratification that, you know, or Jesus is saying, well, hey, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about suffering. You know, if you serve God now, it's all going to work out in the end. I mean, this is essentially Marx's critique of religion. But Jesus is saying, look, the heavens are as near to you as your next breath. I'm talking about a fundamentally different kind of treasure altogether. The kingdom is a present reality. It is a treasure that is available to you. It is accessible to you right now. You do not have to wait for death to experience God's presence. So he is not saying hold off to eternity and you'll experience the good life as defined by luxury and wealth. He is saying you can trade all of that in for life with me now. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's raising that question of what is the good life because whatever you think that is, that is going to pull like gravity on your heart. So you need to see clearly. Hence, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, we read that and we're like, what does ophthalmology have to do with wealth? Uh, this is a first century idiom that doesn't fall easily on modern ears. But in, in Jesus' day, it was a saying, if, if you had healthy eyes, that meant you were a person who had their priorities straight. You were a person who sees reality for what it, it is. You live a life of intentional pursuit. You view things through the lens of God's generosity, of God's blessing to you. Who's, so your eyes are not fixed on your possessions so you can hold them loosely. And by contrast, someone with an unhealthy eye is one who looks through the world or looks out at the world through this lens of scarcity. And your inner character is dark as a result. It's marked by jealousy. It's marked by, by envy, by greed. This is a person who is closed off to the poor, to the plight of others, whose vision is trained on the wrong things and as such does not see the world for how it really is. So then Jesus brings it home with this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. To be clear, Jesus says, you cannot. Not, you can do it, it's really hard. He's saying, like, look, this is not an option. This is not how it works. Riches and the desire for more, they can take over your heart unless you find a way to resist the magnetic pull. And Jesus' point is not that money is bad. It's that it is powerful and it is seductive. And the good life can't be found in amassing wealth or early retirement or a bougie life of hedonistic spending, which is pretty much our cultural inheritance. But instead, it can be found through self-giving love with others in the kingdom of God. About 25% of Jesus' teachings are about what he calls the deceitfulness of wealth. And now there's some scholarly debate about whether this word that he uses that is translated in the last uh, phrase as money is, it's the word mammon. Uh, there's some debate as to whether or not this was a, a cultural god of wealth. And if so, you need to know that it's the only god that Jesus ever calls out by name. You cannot serve both god and mammon. But even if it's not, the point is clear. It can't bear the weight of your service. It cannot bear the weight of your worship. It has the power to chain your soul. And Jesus does not say this as somebody who is out raising money for his nonprofit. And his teachings don't even appear in the form of a command. He's not saying, like, here's how many sweaters you should own. Or, you know, here's what kind of car you should drive. Or here's how much house is too much house. He's just naming reality, that if you arrange your life around consuming things, things will consume you instead. And so more than anything else, Jesus warned about the allure of finding our identity, our security, and wealth, 
in things. He saw them as chief rivals that pull our hearts away from a single-eyed vision on the kingdom. He also said things like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that word blessed is the word for happiness. He's telling us that the, the road to happiness is in generosity. It is in other-oriented life, which if we needed additional proof, social science tells us in study after study that, yeah, that's actually how it works. So, you know, I know what you're thinking. Like, for sophisticated modern people, you know, you hear words like idolatry, and you're like, well, that, that you know, that's, that's something that uh, primitive people did with graven images a long time ago. It's not really something that, that affects me. But an idol is... is anything. It, it can be a good thing, but it's anything that grabs a hold of your heart and tells you, you can't live without me. And the thing that makes us dangerous, the things that makes idols dangerous for us, is that we don't consciously decide to worship them, at least not always. They work their way into our hearts in ways that we are not even aware of what's happening. Every person here all of us, myself included, we all have a vision of what the good life is. And whatever that vision is, uh, that's going to be the thing that you end up devoting your time, your money, your attention, your effort, your energy. You're, all, you're trying to bring that thing about in your life. And our culture trains us to believe that you can buy your way into that good life. And it does this by immersing us in habits, in rituals, in practices that shape our attention, that pull our hearts in a certain direction, causing us to love whatever it is that it wants us to love. And it doesn't do this by appealing to our, our intellects. It does this by aiming for our hearts, by hijacking our desires by building new habits and new rhythms that shape our hearts toward whatever end it wants to. And usually it's a story that fires up the imagination in some way. It creates this illusion of who or what we can become. And consumerism is one of the most powerful stories out there because it is trying to answer some of the biggest questions of our lives. Like what's the point to have it all. What's the problem? I don't have what I need to be happy. I don't look like that person over there. I don't look like that guy with his house all in order. I don't look like that woman with her fabulous body. Like consumerism immerses you in a story. It's a commercial of a dad and his teenage daughter smiling at him as they're dancing in the backyard around a fire pit and those Glowing lanterns are hung tastefully around the trees. And his wife is looking out at him from the kitchen window. And she has this look like, I'm so glad I married you. You're definitely getting lucky tonight. And you begin to think, man, if I had those lights, then my daughter would dance with me. My daughter who doesn't like to go outside because the insects are insane. But she'd do it because of the lights. That life could be mine. What's the point? To be happy, I need those things. What's the problem? I don't have those things. How's it all going to get fixed? You've got to get those things. 
If I can just buy my way into it, I don't have to deal with my own insufficiencies because deep down, I believe I'm not enough. Whether that's because of my thinning hair, my sagging skin, or my beat-up car, whatever it is, I just need to buy my way to the next level. How's it all going to end? How am I going to find the good life? When I get the things that I need, I'm going to hold on to that feeling forever. And that's going to be enough to be satisfied. That's going to be enough to be loved. I mean, these are the biggest questions, or some of the biggest questions in life, right? And we are wide open to these worship prompts all the time because it's not a bad thing to want to have a, an intimate relationship with your family. It's not, I mean, it's a, it's a good thing. But we're open to these prompts because they promise us on things that they can't deliver to us. And then they can't bear the weight of our desire, of our longing. Our feelings don't last. That watch you bought that you thought was going to get you that next promotion, after a while, it's just a watch. That car, that house. And then you start thinking, well, I guess I need the next level. So you're running, you're running, you're running, chasing after that feeling. You cannot serve two masters. Whatever it is that you value most, that, that thing has a way of pulling your heart into its orbit. That's going to be the thing that you build your life around. That's going to be the thing you look to for salvation. What you love most, you will build your life around, and eventually you will become what you love. Arrange your life around things, and you will ha never have enough, and eventually it will eat you alive. So if all that's the problem, then... How do we begin to train ourselves in a different way of being? Well, over the next six weeks, we are going to dive into a practice that we see in the life of Jesus, that we see modeled all throughout the life of the church, and it's called simplicity. And you can think of it as resistance training to the propaganda of more. And the writers of the New Testament and all the saints throughout the early history of the church agree that the good life is not found in a dream home or found in, you know, fine dining experiences. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they're not going to deliver. And they call us instead to a lifestyle of simple living, of generosity, of gratitude, of, of joy in the simple pleasure, and above all, of contentment in the life of God. And I got to be honest with you, like, I'm not up here saying this as like, I got this figured out. This is not one of those things where I can say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I mean, I am swimming in these cultural waters as well. But I, as I have been learning, you know, and as I have been leaning into my own experiments over the last you know, few years with, with simplicity, my experience has been that what Jesus says is true, that more stuff, more distractions, more more uh, you know, appointments on my calendar, more busyness leads to less peace, less contentment, less generosity, less time for relationship, less joy, less time enjoying the simple pleasures of being with God in the ordinary stuff of the day. And conversely, it's also true that when I begin to have less things, crowding my space, crowding my vision, crowding my calendar, it's left me with more room for the kingdom and more space for others in my life. 
And sometimes this idea of simplicity gets associated with kind of like a, a Spartan sort of meager existence with a minimalist life or with this sort of easy, you know, kind of detached, carefree attitude uh, toward the world. And, and, and that certainly is like part of the external outworking of the practice. But the word itself is simply a word from the Latin simplex, and it means to be singular or undivided. It is not the opposite of simplicity is not difficulty. The opposite of simplicity is complexity, which is to have multiple divisions or multiple things pulling at your heart. And so the goal of simplicity, at least on the internal side, is simply to live with intentionality around what matters most. And that involves setting priorities and making sure that the first thing is the first thing, that the most important thing is at the center of your lives so that you avoid the trap of chasing after everything. Uh, Kierkegaard's famous maxim, purity of heart is to will one thing. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that one thing is Jesus and his kingdom. So you can think of it as a practice and as a way of being. Uh, Richard Foster, who's kind of a, uh, a writer on the spiritual life, kind of one of the, the pioneers, as you were in, in recent times, of spiritual practices, describes simplicity like this. It is an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and God's kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness and in which, which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Jan Johnson adds this, we practice simplicity when we intentionally arrange our life around God, what he is doing in us and in his world, and let the rest drop off. I mean, it's all invitation, friends. And at heart, the simple life is where the compass needle of our heart is oriented to its true north. It is oriented to God. And you leverage your time, your money, your talents, your, your possessions toward the thing that matters most. And then you are, by degree and by degree, free from the, the thing that pulls your heart's compass away. And that's why it is also a practice. And so the goal over the next little while, we've, we've got this uh, community and practices guide that is available. Uh, you can grab a copy of it out on the registration decks. Uh, but the goal behind it is not just to like declutter your closet or, you know, to, to get rid of stuff that you, you don't look at anymore. The, the goal behind it really is to declutter your life, to do away from the distractions that fill you with anxiety, that that numb you to the presence and the reality of God's presence in your life. So my hope is that over the next little while, we're going to be here at All Souls, a little laboratory of grace, that we're going to try some experiments, that we're going to uh, see for ourselves. It's the focused life, if the one that is free from the tyranny of accumulation leads to an increased awareness of and enjoyment in the kingdom of God. So like I said, you can grab one of those practices, guys. We're going to journey through it. We're going to try it on together. We're going to kick the tires, as it were, on this particular way of living. But to end, I want to kind of give three key attitudes of heart that help summarize this internal focus. Real brief. And it's this. If what you have allows you to delight in God 
then you are experiencing the treasure of the kingdom. If what you have, you have received as a gift from God for you to steward, then your eyes are clear. And if what you have is available to others when clearly that is a good and proper thing to do, then you have a heart that is free to serve God. And that's what it looks like to live this inward reality of simplicity. As always, this is all invitation. I am not here to coerce you. I am not here to guilt you. I am just here to invite you to consider Jesus' words about reality and to simplify your life as you can, not as you can't. Start where you are. The only place God will ever meet you is where you are. God is gracious. He will not meet you where you're not. He will meet you where you are. And so my hunch is that as you reflect, as you pray, as you start to go through this, you'll start to feel the Spirit nudge you in a particular direction. You'll, you'll start to see where these kind of disordered attachments that you have in your heart are, are pulling you away from God. And it might look like going through your closet. It might look like simplifying your wardrobe. It, it might look like eating out less than three times a week and then giving that money that you would have spent toward a soup kitchen. Maybe you will even feel the pull to ditch your iPhone for 30 days and just, you know, for everything that's not essential in your life and just begin to experience what it's like to watch a TV show where you actually know what is happening in the TV show because you're not looking on your phone every five minutes. Just me? Just me, okay. Or maybe simplicity for you is just simply embracing the joy of a warm bed and a cool pillow. But whatever it is, whatever invitation, whatever longing you have from the Spirit, start there. Living simply requires practice because when Jesus says, follow me, he's not talking just about your mind. He's talking about your body. He's asking you to do something. But it's an, an intentional course of action to choose that path of walking with him. We do this with our families. We do this as a community. We do this as individuals in our own personal lives, in our own hearts. But it is also grace. Because the, the work that God does in you, the work of the Spirit in your life, far outpaces any sort of effort you put into it. So that means that the life of simplicity is a gift to be received, an invitation to trust that God is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the good life is not for sale, that it's not tied to a number in an account, it's not tied to a square footage in a home, it's not tied to anything that we have to leave behind. We thank you that you, who did not have a place to lay his head, and yet were at home and joyful in the kingdom of God, showed us a way to live that we too may find joy in the kingdom. And so I ask that as we meet, as we pray over these next six weeks, as we experiment with each of us where we are, that we would do so in the trust that you 
are the one who began a good work in us, and you are the one who will bring it to completion.